Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine, it was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give better help a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Byzantium. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. If you'd like to support the history of Byzantium, and get a free audiobook, check out Audible's service and their 100,000 or so titles. For example, listener PV recommends the book The Empress by Meg Clothier, a novel based on events in 12th century Constantinople as a French princess arrives betrothed to the emperor's son. If you live in the US or Canada and want to check out The Empress or any other book Audible has to offer, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to start your free trial. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 45 The Empty Fleet. Last time, we saw the Persians increase their grip on the Byzantine East by capturing the whole of Syria and Palestine. With Shah Viraz organizing the new conquests in the Levant, Shahin burst out of Armenia to launch a huge raid on Anatolia. With Heraclius back in the capital, organizing the empire's finances, it was left to Philippicus to provide the empire's military response. The old general tried again to lure Shahin home by attacking Persian Armenia, but Shahin ignored him and marched on into the largely unguarded western provinces. The Persians were intent on inflicting maximum damage on the heartlands of the empire. Shahin made for Ancyra in Galatia, right in the centre of Anatolia, and sacked it. He then drove on westward and divided his forces, one group sacked Sardis, one of the largest cities on the west coast, while the other besieged Chalcedon, just across the Bosphorus from Constantinople. The city held out for a few weeks before succumbing to the Persian raid. During the siege, Heraclius could hardly ignore this enemy army on his doorstep. 
it's implied that on a clear night, Persian watchfires were visible from the walls of Constantinople. So the emperor sent messages to Shahin, asking if he would be willing to discuss peace terms. The general made it clear that he could not negotiate, but he was willing to provide safe passage for an embassy to travel with him back to Tessaphon to discuss the situation with Khusro. Heraclius agreed and sent several high officials, including the Praetorian prefect Olympius, across the straits to form an embassy that would make the journey to Persia. As you know, Khusro had rejected Heraclius's initial offer of peace on the grounds that he was no more legitimate as a successor to Maurice than Phocas had been. So to try and avoid a repetition of this scenario, the emperor asked the senate to write a formal letter to the king of kings. The carefully worded document blamed the ills of the empire on Phocas and explained that as the legal authority of the Roman state, they, and the people, had elevated Heraclius to be their new sovereign and hoped that Khusro would now discuss peace with him. It seems like Shahin believed that the embassy would be favourably received. Despite the string of amazing victories that he had been a part of, the Byzantine army was still out there. They still had resources in the west to call on, so it might be better to establish a peace that let the Persians keep what they had taken, rather than risk losing it all by overextending themselves. However, the King of Kings disagreed. Whatever his initial war aims had been, Khusro now felt he didn't need to make any deal. His armies were winning every engagement they took part in. The Byzantines were in retreat, and there were more conquests to be made before he needed to talk to anyone. So he imprisoned the delegation and left them to die in captivity. The conquest of Roman territory would continue. In 617, Shavaraz began the invasion of Egypt. Taking the coast road, he first captured Pelusium, and then Niku, before making plans to march further south and cut off Alexandria from any traffic coming down the Nile. Inside Alexandria, the situation had been jittery since the fall of Jerusalem. As I mentioned last time, refugees began to appear as soon as the Persians broke through into Syria, and a flood of them rolled in once the holy city was sacked. In charge of the city, Nicetus and the patriarch John had to negotiate some difficult issues. The first was the use of church funds to help pay for the army of the east, and possibly some forces from Africa, which were being gathered to defend the province. Then came the issue of the Monophysites. The imperial authorities began to fear that Monophysite Egyptians might welcome Persian occupation, especially after it became known that the Persians had used religious differences to aid their occupation of Syria. In some cities there, they had encouraged the local Monophysites to take the leading role in the administration of their local areas to help contrast their rule to the orthodox oppression of Constantinople. The Patriarch gathered together the Monophysite leadership and signed an act of union, declaring that for now the churches spoke with one voice. 
It doesn't seem like this act made any difference to behaviour on the ground, though. The Persians encountered little resistance from the civilian population. And as in the Levant, local towns made deals with the invading army to avoid destruction in exchange for submission. We have almost no sources for what happened next. We don't know what happened to Byzantine military resistance. It would be logical to assume that they fought the Persians somewhere and were defeated yet again. Though I suppose it's possible that Nicetus had decided to avoid pitched battle and hoped to garrison as many towns as possible. Whatever strategy he employed, it failed. We don't know what, if anything, Heraclius was able to do to offer assistance to his cousin during this time. We only know that at some point in 618, Alexandria was put under siege. With the population swollen with refugees and possibly a large portion of the army, it would be impossible to feed them all. Nicetus and John decided to abandon the city. Nicetus seems to have gone back to Carthage, possibly to become Exarch. John made his way to his native Cyprus, and at least some of the army of the east made their way to Anatolia. But once the harbour was empty, the remaining populace surrendered to Shavaraz to avoid starvation. The general recognised an exclusively Monophysite hierarchy in the city, which must have pleased some, and by 620 the whole of Egypt was in Persian hands. Egypt, taken by Augustus himself some 650 years earlier, the most prized economic asset in the Mediterranean world, was gone. This was, of course, a complete and utter disaster. By dying of a thousand cuts, there were few moments in the collapse of the Western Empire that were as decisive as Palestine and Egypt disappearing from the map in barely five years. Our sources for this period of history are far from thorough, so we aren't entirely sure of the reaction back in the capital to this most calamitous of news. In some of the written histories, the capture of Alexandria was blamed on betrayal by a Byzantine commander who showed the Persians a disused canal from which they could enter the city. As far as we can tell, though, this probably didn't happen. Perhaps it was spread around at the time, or perhaps it was a later invention. As ever, the propaganda of the office of Roman emperor didn't really have room for failure or inadequacy. The loss of Jerusalem was down to those hateful Jews. The loss of Egypt to a treacherous, ungrateful sub-commander. Heraclius was in desperate need of excuses, because it was looking increasingly like the Roman Empire was about to collapse, and he was the captain at the tiller of this sinking ship. A question worth asking is why no one tried to assassinate an emperor who had overseen the worst series of territorial losses in the empire's history. In 619, the exarch of Ravenna, Eleutherius, who was sent to Italy to put down an uprising, proclaimed himself emperor. But his was not an attempt to take over Constantinople, merely to lead Italy as a breakaway kingdom. 
and his soldiers soon assassinated him anyway. The simple answer might be that officials and soldiers looked around and thought, if we purge yet another layer of top men, we may just be unplugging the life support on a dying empire. At least with internal stability, we might be able to cling on to what we've got. It could also be that one thing Heraclius was successful at was controlling public opinion. In previous episodes, we saw how he used religious symbols to associate his regime with piety, and then used his children to show off his healthy dynasty. Well, his efforts didn't stop there. It seems likely that Heraclius encouraged the leaking of official letters. The letter from the Senate meant for Kusro was allowed to fall into the public domain so that everyone could be reassured of the government's efforts on their behalf to put an end to this ruinous war. Months later, another letter appeared, this time apparently the reply which the King of Kings leisurely penned after imprisoning the Byzantine embassy. Kusro refers to Heraclius as his vile, imbecile slave. He offers him a nice farm, though, to retire on if he hands himself over to the Persians and makes disparaging remarks about Jesus' failure to escape crucifixion at the hands of the Jews. It's not clear whether this letter really existed or not. If it did, then it was almost certainly a forgery. But whatever the reality, it seems plausible that Heraclius would have encouraged the PR spin to go in this direction. He would have wanted public anger directed against the horrible Persian oppressors rather than their impotent leader. Perhaps this really did help rally men around their emperor. We can't have his name and that of his heavenly father being dragged through the mud by these heathen fire worshippers. With the loss of Egypt, though, Heraclius might have begun to fear for his own position. So he let it be known that he was thinking of leaving Constantinople. That's right. The Emperor of the Romans had decided that it would be better to move back to Carthage and make that the new imperial capital. After all, in Carthage he was a beloved figure. In Carthage he could set up his own court. In Constantinople he was forced to follow centuries of precedent, which meant keeping up a very costly court ritual, employing thousands of servants and bureaucrats, not to mention sponsoring games in the Hippodrome. Carthage was not likely to be threatened by the Persians. It was peaceful and prosperous. And after all, hadn't it proved to be a good base from which to win the civil war, which had included the capture of Alexandria? Of course, in reality, Carthage would not make a good imperial capital. Anatolia was where the empire was now. It was from there that new recruits would be found, that the empire's remaining wealth was, and of course, the highway back to Syria, Palestine and Persia, where surely any future campaigns would be fought. If Heraclius had moved back to Carthage, it seems pretty likely that someone would have declared themselves emperor in Constantinople about five minutes after he left. But once more, Heraclius used this rumour for political gain. The patriarch, Sergius, was on the case, 
beseeching the emperor not to leave. He asked him to come to the Hagia Sophia to publicly swear an oath that he would never abandon the city. Shaking his head, but realizing the error of his ways, the emperor agreed. He would stay and defend the capital forever. Hooray! Quite how much of this play-acting took place, we don't know. It does seem, however, that Heraclius used the threat of abandoning the capital to wring a few more concessions from his people. Certainly he was looking to gain their undivided support and prevent anyone from thinking of usurpation. But he probably also raised taxes on the territory he had left, and he may have asked for loans from wealthy individuals. And he wanted the citizens of New Rome to accept a particularly bitter pill. The Anona, the free grain doll, was to be cancelled. Once the Persians entered Egypt, it had become impossible to gather the annual harvest and ship grain back to Constantinople. The grain fleet stood empty, as did many of the capital's bakeries. I've sort of buried the lead on this one. Long-time listeners will already know that the true significance of Egypt was its grain shipments. Shipments which allowed first Rome, and then later Constantinople, to swell to the giant size that made them the super cities of their age. Originally introduced by Gaius Gracchus, all the way back in 123 BC, publicly subsidized grain had been the bread part of that famous double act, Bread and Circuses, that kept the population of the world's super city happy. By the time Augustus was emperor, the bread was expected to be free, and Constantine followed suit when he built his new city, clearly seeing this as a mark of Roman civilization. Constantinople just couldn't function on the scale it was meant to without it. The capital was an administrative, cultural, and trading center. It was a hub for ecclesiastical and monastic work. It was a fortress for refugees to flee to when local areas were invaded. It was a military base for the precental armies. It was where the empire's main fleet resided. Below all those who drew imperial salaries or made their living in a guild were thousands of others who would not have survived without a state handout of food and wine to keep them alive. I talked last episode about the news of Jerusalem's sack, which would have shocked many back in the capital. Anyone with a basic knowledge of geography would have grasped that the war was going very badly if the Persians could penetrate Palestine. But what about those without an understanding of geography? Too many times when we read history, we tend to imagine that ancient societies are like our own. That on some level, every person in the Roman Empire was aware of the danger of the Persians, or the Avars. But we have to try and understand what life was actually like in a world with no communication technology. Even today, I bet you have friends, university-educated friends, who have no idea what's going on in Syria in 2014. They just aren't interested 
It seems a long way away and irrelevant to their daily lives. Now imagine a world where the vast majority of the population are illiterate and had never even seen a map. They might know which direction Syria was in, but beyond that, events there were obscure and unimportant. Most people would have lived on farms that were not on imperial highways or near a port. Unless you saw a raiding party for yourself, even the idea of Jerusalem falling might not have overly concerned you. Back in Constantinople, imagine the life of an unskilled labourer. He looks around him and sees giant buildings and wealth beyond the likes of which he'd ever imagined before he came here. The news that Egypt had fallen might worry others, but he wasn't too sure where that was or what it meant. The city was filled with statues and columns proclaiming great Roman victories. Surely another one would follow, just as night follows day. But the morning when he turned up to his local street corner and was told that there was no more bread, that there would be no more wine, ever, that was the day that he knew something was very wrong. That was the day when he realized that the Roman Empire was falling. Famine followed in the capital as people whose lives were built around state handouts looked to the church for aid, and the church could only help so many. If you didn't have family elsewhere in the empire, the chances are you would need to head out into Thrace to try and find a farm that would take you in. Thrace, a place where people were now fearfully watching the horizon for the next Slav or Avar horde to appear. Speaking of the Slavs and Avars, I mentioned last episode that the Kargan had sent out word that he expected local Slav tribes to hop to when he called, and in 618 he gathered his forces for an attack on Thessalonica. Once again, the major imperial city in the Balkans held on, with the populace giving its thanks to their patron saint Demetrius for his assistance. Many Byzantines had fled to the city to avoid enslavement, and so the city's sturdy walls were a vital part of keeping what little of the Balkans remained in imperial hands. I think I should also take this opportunity to give you a little more information about our good patriarch, Sergius. After all, it should be clear by now that the patriarch was a very influential ally of the emperors. Having supported the usurpation, and crowned Heraclius himself, the patriarch clearly got on well with his new sovereign. He would have to have done if he were going to approve the incestuous marriage with Martina and then go along with the charade of the vow to remain in Constantinople. Heraclius knew that to have the support of the leading religious figure in the empire was vital to his legitimacy, and it seems that Sergius knew that he needed a strong emperor if he was going to protect his flock from being conquered by heathens. Born in Syria, Sergius's parents were actually Monophysites, though he must have professed orthodox beliefs to rise as quickly as he did in his ecclesiastical career. 
He became a deacon in the Hagia Sophia before being appointed patriarch by Phocus. Perhaps his background suggests that Sergius knew how to compromise. I'm not suggesting his orthodoxy was insincere, but this characterization would seem to fit with his flexible attitude once he reached the top. The bond the two men forged was crucial in the survival of the empire. Had the patriarch been rigidly zealous, it could have caused internal strife at a moment when Romania could not afford it. With the loss of Egypt, Heraclius had to come to Sergius for another huge favour. The emperor had to go back out on campaign. If he didn't defeat the Persians now, then the east would be lost forever. The Persians would soon be collecting Roman taxes to pay their men and harvesting Roman grain to feed them. That could allow them to recruit larger armies and perhaps attempt the conquest of Constantinople itself. But with the wealthy east out of his hands, the emperor didn't have the money he would need. He was going to have to rebuild his army and recruit new men. He couldn't rely on the tax base he had, so he turned to the one place that was rich and exempt from tax, the church. Sergius put the ecclesiastical and monastic wealth of the empire at the emperor's disposal. In the form of a giant loan, the church's gold, silver and bronze was handed over to be melted into coins. Even the many ornate candlesticks from the Hagia Sophia went into the furnace. I can only imagine what our unskilled labourer would have thought when he turned up at church to see the building stripped bare. But Heraclius would soon have the cash he needed to attempt a counterattack. The war that Heraclius is about to embark on is one of the most dramatic episodes in Roman history. It will take far more than a 30-minute episode to recount it, and yet I think the drama will be lost if I spread it out over a bunch of episodes. I will be needing three weeks for this one, and when I return, I will be channeling the spirit of Dan Carlin with a giant episode as Heraclius fronts up to the worst circumstances any Roman emperor has ever faced. Until then, you can find me at thehistoryofbyzantium.com and on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening.